and what's being revealed here about God and about us, really, and how do we respond? Um, and as I've tried to effort this question, one of the great influences in my life as a Christian um, has been a Dutch Catholic priest. He was a professor, writer, and theologian named Henry Nouwen. Anybody else a friend? Uh, a uh, fan of Henry Nouwen? Okay, yeah, he's, he's one of the good ones. Um, in his writings and teachings, he would often use these parables, and one, one that he repeated a lot is one of my favorites, and I want us to listen to it together. It's a parable about these two twins having a conversation in utero, like in their mother's womb before they're born. And um, so uh, just, just listen to this as I, I read it. Twins were talking to each other in their mother's womb. The sister said to the brother, I believe there is life after birth. Her brother vehemently protested. No, no, this is all there is. This is a dark and cozy place, and we have nothing else to do but cling to the cord that feeds us. The little girl insisted, there must be something more than this dark place. There must be something else, a place with light, where there is freedom to move. Till she could not convince her twin brother. After some silence, the sister said hesitantly, I have something else to say, and I'm afraid you won't believe that either, but I think there is a mother. Her brother became furious. A mother, he shouted. What are you talking about? I've never seen a mother, and neither have you. Who put that idea in your head? As I told you, this place is all we have. Why do you always want more? This is not such a bad place, after all. We have all we need, so let's just be content. The sister was quite overwhelmed by her brother's response and for a while didn't dare say anything more, but she couldn't let go of her thoughts. And since she had only her twin brother to speak to, she finally said, but don't you feel the squeezes? every once in a while. They're quite unpleasant and sometimes even painful. Yes, he answered. What's so special about that? Well, the sister said, I think that these squeezes are there to get us ready for another place, much more beautiful than this, where we will see our mother face to face. Don't you think that's exciting? The brother didn't answer. He was fed up with the foolish talk of his sister and felt that the best thing would be simply to ignore her and hope she would leave him alone. That's the parable. I kind of feel like we would just like say amen and go home and just think about that for a while, right? It's such a profound little situation that helps us, I think, reimagine our own lives, living here as we are, in a sense, in the womb of the world you might say, hoping there's a mother, right? A creator, a God, but lacking any way to know for certain. Nobody's ever seen God. We live in the dark a little bit. There's no scientific proof of God's existence. And there are many living here in, in the womb of the world who think that this life is all there is. There's no God, no creator, no mother nurturing and loving us. There's nothing after death, nothing beyond the womb itself. The world is all we have, and it's not that bad of a place. We should just enjoy it. But the little girl says something that seems so profound and true, I think, that it still kind of rips me open. I have trouble reading it out loud, even though I've read it like a thousand times. She says, but don't you feel the squeezes? 
sometimes. They're a bit unpleasant and, and maybe a little painful. She says, I think the squeezes are from the mother. And I think they're preparing us for something else, maybe life outside the womb, preparing us maybe even to see the mother face to face. And of course, the brother feels the squeezes too, but he draws a different conclusion. And he sort of dismisses her silly talk of life outside the womb and a mother and tries to just ignore her. And really, from the first time I ever read this, um, this parable or heard it, this metaphor of the squeezes has, has really st- stuck with me. And I think it resonates with something deep within me and in my own experience because I feel the squeezes sometimes. Those moments in life during which it seems impossible to deny that God is somehow with me in, in like the, the worst of it. It's somehow present in my life. In fact, I think that we all feel the squeezes. The problem is we don't really know how to interpret them here in the dark. You know, locked inside our familiar cultural linguistic frameworks, our, our own worldviews, you might say, nestled within our nice warm epistemologies, half blind and unaware of all that we cannot see. And yet we all feel the squeezes from time to time. These moments when life just arrests us, awakens us to the possibility that there just might be more, right? More than we can see more than we can say or prove something beyond this, outside of this, and yet undeniably pressing down on us, squeezing us, perhaps even maybe preparing us for something. But we don't know how to interpret the squeezes. And so we typically assign them meaning that kind of over time tends to rob us of our natural capacity to discern them as the nearness of God in the midst of life. Now, I think that everyone, even like the most hardened atheist, feels the squeezes and stops to wonder every now and then if there might be more, if there's something to all this talk of the the divine. And I think these squeezes fuel the human, um, kind of universal human longing for God and longing for meaning in life. The Hebrew Bible tells the story of Abraham who felt the squeezes at a time when everyone else was ignoring God. But Abraham called out to God, and so God pulled him aside apart from other people and just hammered God's image into him and his family. God's character came alive in them, and they became the presence of God to the world. Later on, the law of Moses put kind of a structure to their peculiar way of life, a way of organizing their common life together through these odd habits and rhythms and practices that helped them all cultivate a sensitivity to to God, to the squeezes of life, sort of this living memory that could live on in the people of God. But by the time that Jesus came along, the law of Moses was really no longer working like it was designed to work. Keeping the law had mostly become a way of sort of reinforcing in-group, out-group identity, or a way to win God's favor, kind of an ancient prosperity gospel, you know? If you keep these laws, then God will bless Israel, you know, and fight on their behalf, protect them from their enemies. And, and the law of Moses sort of became swallowed up in Jewish nationalism. So it was like when Jesus came along. It had stopped helping the rest of the world to interpret the squeezes. 
as God reaching out to them, you know, leading them towards some kind of peace. So when Jesus appeared, he gave his followers, in a sense, a new law of Moses, a new teaching that we've come to call the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we're going to read um, this week and for the next few weeks in the lectionary. And it is the central teaching that survived from Christ's ministry, which, and it, as a, just a work of literature, has become one of the most important pieces of writing ever. Even among secularists, it's considered a profound teaching. No passage in the scripture has been studied more and um, discussed more, um, written about, maybe even fought over. For me, if people ask me where to start reading the Bible, I always say Sermon on the Mount. I hardly make it through a single week of my life without reading in this, these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, 7 at some point. And there are classic takes on, you know, how this sermon should be read. Some say it's basically a humanist manifesto, right? It's just telling you the best that humans should aspire to be. Some say it's a plea for social action, like a motivational speech for social justice warriors. Some say it's meant to be an unreachable ideal that we'll just fail to achieve and then just throw ourselves on the mercy of, uh, mercies of God. That's what Calvin thought, or, and, and Luther thought that, really. Others say it's, it's, a, it's a glimpse of like an eschatological or heavenly realm. It's not about right now at all. It's just about eternity. And of course, there's like a kernel of truth in, in all of those things. But none of them get to the heart of this sermon. Because really, to get to the heart of it, you have to remember the Sermon of the Mount um, comes from the, the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew is emphasizing the whole time that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and the king of all nations, a new ruler, a new sovereign over this new government of God they call the kingdom of God. And these are all kind of political terms because they're about how we organize our lives together. Matthew is very careful to present Jesus as teaching his followers that Jesus brings salvation to the world by bringing the kingdom of God to the world. Jesus isn't just a religious teacher. He isn't just a sacrificial lamb. He's a new king, a new president. When Matthew tells the story of Jesus, he uses all these parallels between the life of Moses and the life of Jesus to try to set people up and to kind of work this existing imagination to, to show them what Jesus is trying to do. And so like Moses had been Israel's leader during the Exodus, Jesus leads them during the new Exodus in Matthew. Moses' birth was announced in a dream. Jesus' birth announced in dreams. And both of those dreams predicted that each would one day save their people. Both, if you remember, were threatened as babies by these insecure kings. There was Pharaoh, there was Herod. And each of those kings ordered the massacre of Jewish male babies. The midwives and moms, mothers, saved Moses. The magi saved Jesus and his family. Both Moses and Jesus came out of Egypt. Both passed through waters into their life of ministry. So um, through the Red Sea for Moses, through the waters of baptism for Jesus. Both fed miraculously with bread or manna. Both were tested in the wilderness both were called shepherds of their people. Moses gave the five books of the Torah. Jesus gives five speeches in the book of Matthew. Both established 
new covenants with God. Moses climbed Mount Sinai, right, to bring down the Ten Commandments. Jesus climbed the Mount of the Beatitudes to give this new commandment, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew clearly wants us to see that whatever God is doing in in Jesus is, is similar to, it's the culmination of what God was doing through Moses. So where Moses like led the 12 tribes of Israel, gave them 10 commandments and, and the Torah, these basic instructions on how to be the people of God, Jesus led 12 disciples, sort of a new 12 tribes, a new Israel, and gave them 10, actually nine, beatitudes and this, this Sermon on the Mount, these new basic instructions, new command, he said, a new command I give you on how to be the people of God. So this, it's not just a humanist manifesto or about social action or an unreachable ideal or a far-off heavenly kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is a vision of what the world is supposed to be like when Jesus is finally king. And, and the claim is, it's kind of a crazy thing to claim, that this teaching is not just on par with the Ten Commandments. It's, it's ahead of it, above it. It's, it's this um, new command that takes precedence. And so everything else has to be read in light of this comprehensive proclamation of this new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And anywhere that Jesus is Lord, this is what the world will be like. And, and it begins... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. We call this section the Beatitudes. Anybody have to memorize this in like Sunday school or anything like that? Yeah. So it's, we call it the Beatitudes because um, Beatitudo is Latin for blessed, and most of the world read the Bible in Latin for centuries, and the name just sort of stuck, which can be deceiving, deceiving because we're tempted to think that they are the B-attitudes, you know, like attitudes that you should be, but, but literally that's not it. The, the, they are the blesseds. That's what Beatitudo means, blessed. Um, they name what it looks like to be blessed, in the kingdom of God. And Matthew had, had many words to choose from to convey this idea of blessing. He could have used eudaimonia, um, which means happy, a happy spirit, in a sense. If Jesus meant happy are they, that some English translations use that. If he meant happy are they, he would have used eudaimonia. Um, he could have used eulogeo, um, which is a, a command to bless, um, if he was commanding us, he would have used that word. Like later in this same sermon, he'll say, bless those who curse you. And there it's eulageo. Um, but he doesn't use those. And, and the reason I think is that in, in this passage, Jesus isn't telling us what to do. Jesus is naming a reality. And this is really huge. It's hard to get. Um, in the blesseds, Jesus isn't telling us what to do. He's just naming reality in the kingdom of God. And so he uses this word markarios, which we translate as blessed. And it means blessed, but like the closest English word, I, I try to find a good word. The closest I can come up with is lucky. It means lucky, like good fortune. Um, it's close to, in, in German, you would say heil, like hail. In Greek, you would say soteria, like saved. And in Hebrew, it'd be much like shalom. In Arabic, salam. Or in, in like American, it's like, it's all good. That's what it means. It's all good. Which is the scandal of what he's saying. Lucky are, it's all good for all the wrong people. If you, if you think about it, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, he says. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, long ache for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil, for great is your reward in heaven. And the most interesting thing about this passage to me is always that he he says these things as a reality, not in in the future tense, but now in the present tense. Like anywhere I'm king, These are the folks who are being blessed. They're already blessed. And markarios, it's an interesting word. It has this connotation that um, implies a a relationship, a reciprocation of some kind. That the one who possessed the blessing um, is in relationship with the one who bestows the blessing. So it's a gift. It's a divine gift that stems from being in the presence of the king. And, and the blessing really does become the possession of the blessed one. It's a gift that becomes sort of their inner condition, this inner heil or soteria or shalom or salam, or it's all good. You know, they are the luckiest ones. And this comes from being in the presence of God and, and an awareness of God as king. So this word markarios that we translate blessed, it's just packed with all this meaning it's a divine gift. It's of luckiness, it's good fortune. It's re- relational. It stems from being in the presence of the king. And it truly is a gift, like it's ours to have, you might say. And it's, 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 I think, what Jesus was talking about when he said things like, the kingdom of God is within you. He was trying to get you to know you have it. It lives in you. But the kingdom of God has come near. Like the blessedness is not some future thing you have to die to get to, right? It's, it's now. And it's, it's not just completely natural as a, like a human faculty. It's a gift that we receive from God that becomes our possession, like it belongs to us. Actually, what it, who it belongs to is all the wrong people, the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, those who are just dying for a little rightness, merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. We all know how it works out for the peacemakers, right? And the persecuted. Now, we have to acknowledge as we read it that it doesn't seem like a blessing to be, say, poor in spirit, um, to have people hate you or leave you out or revile and defame you. Those seem more like curses than blessings. Um, But Jesus is flatly stating, no, you have it all wrong. I'm telling you, these are the blessed ones. They have some kind of inner condition, this this gift that has now become woven to their very souls. They feel the squeezes, the ups and downs, and the sorrows and the joys of life. And, And in the midst of that, they turn to God and know that somehow God is present helping them with their lives. And the nature of his blessing is that um, because of their pain and struggle, 
not in spite of it. Because of their pain and struggle, God is with them. So even though, like, blessed are kind of all the things that we are constantly trying to avoid, those who encounter those things and endure them will actually see God if they're willing to be friends with this new king, in relationship with this new king. You have to remember, in a world like, like theirs, like where the king held everyone's fortune in his hands, like what could be better than to be friends with the king, especially if it's a righteous king, like a, a king that's a king as kings should be, who helps the people around him become human as humans should be. And so blessed, he says, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. The word poor is kind of interesting too. It's tokos. It means poor, but it has the implication that um, a person is aware of their own condition and is kind of like um, too aware of it to lie about it. You know what I mean? You know, like people, uh, it's what we mean by ragamuffin, really. You're just too jacked up to pretend like you're not all jacked up. You know what I mean? And, and this is, is said to be a blessing, right? They're not just poor, they're poor in spirit in their souls, and their poverty has somehow like made them humble. There's this inner awareness of, yeah, I'm a mess. It's spiritual poverty everywhere I look. It's brokenness. The ragamuffins who are like not afraid to admit it. This is a blessing. It, it always reminds me of that, like the story of the tax collector and the sinner who go to the temple to pray, and the Pharisees like, thank God I'm not like that tax collector. Like, what a loser. And the tax man is like, Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm so, I'm so messed up. And Jesus says, the tax man, that's the prayer. That's the prayer. The, the other guy, he, he can never see God. What does he need God for? Right? The tax man is quite rich. That was why everybody hated the tax man. But he's poor in spirit. He comes to God and says, uh, I'm a mess. They're not proud people, the poor in spirit. They're, they're not self-righteous posers. And the other guy's like, what do they got for? They got everything they need. They may feel the squeezes, but they can't see. In, in the story, the way Matthew tells it, they can't see that what seems like just like the, an ordinary man, or maybe a, like a rabble-rousing heretic, Jesus, is actually the presence of God with them in the world. In the in the broken places. This is where he always goes. Jesus had like a radar for the broken places. And just being with him seemed to transform the experience of life. Even the worst parts of it became where Jesus did his best work. And their blessing in the end isn't in their like, like status as being poor or poor in spirit. The blessing is they see God in Jesus the presence of God with this, and always at their point of like their greatest need, you know? So I think if you were to translate the Beatitudes into sort of common English, taking seriously that it's God's presence that makes the blessing, it would say something like, it's all good for those who are stone cold messed up and aware that they are broken. They are friends with the king and they know him as divine. How fortunate are the mourners, for God comforts them with God's own presence. How lucky are the meek, 
God is already with them, and he's the king. The whole earth is his, and he gives it to them. Lucky are those who long to just be human, as human was intended to be, because they're already fully alive. God is filling their unhumanness, their brokenness with God's presence. God is already with the merciful, and they are receiving mercy. God is already with the pure heart, pure at heart, because they see God as God. God is already with the peacemakers, for they are part of the royal family. God is already with those who are persecuted for being human as human was meant to be, and they are already heirs of the kingdom. And it's all good for God is already with those Lucky are, fortunate are those who get insulted and lied about and beat up and knocked around because they're friends with the king. This Jesus, the king, that the proud don't want to follow, is already blessing the ragamuffins of the world with his friendship, which turns out to be, in Matthew's gospel, all the gospels, friendship with God. For the blessed ones in the Beatitudes, their blessing is not in their status as ragamuffins, but in the presence of God, who is always with those who struggle, with those who feel the squeezes and turn their eyes to Jesus. And the sad truth is, this is not everybody's cup of tea. And just because you go to church doesn't mean it's really your cup of tea, you know? Because if you're already, you know, uh, fully invested in the kingdoms of the world, if you're already, if you already benefit from the status quo, then, then what good is, is Jesus to you? What would you want with a new king if you're already tight with the old king? That would be a threat to your power, actually. If, if you already benefit from all the systems of the world, why would you be interested in changing those systems? And this is why the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots and the Romans despised Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount, it's like the most comprehensive teaching that we have um, from Christ. And it begins with this, I mean, crazy declaration that the kingdom of God is for the left out and the left behind. It's for the down and out and the strugglers. And this is not actually what everyone wants. Jesus is kind of irrelevant to the proud and the powerful. Jesus is of no use to the cruel and the violent. And, and so most of his ministry was just, he'd go to places and figure out who the losers were, and he'd just go hang out with them. He was working on the symptoms of their problem because he was like he would heal them and he would lead them to some kind of confession. And, and, and here in the Sermon on the Mount, he sort of goes to the root of their problem, the root causes of the pain that all of their fighting and scrapping and and you know hurting each other to wind up on top in this this world. It was sort of breaking the world. And it was breaking their souls in the process. It was keeping them from feeling the squeezes and knowing them as God. Or if they did feel the squeezes, they just couldn't see them for what they are. And so they're just lonely and estranged from the mother 
creator, their God. And Jesus is just essentially undermining any attempts to live life that is not rooted in friendship with God. And then because of that, friendship with neighbor. And even in this sermon with enemy. Because that's the blessed life, he says. And I know that when we talk about the presence of God, I mean, we all kind of shake our heads and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's really hard for even me to know what I mean when I say that. God is a mystery, right? And, and I, so I don't mean we have to see the presence of God as like a slight or to, to make a club of in and out. I actually really respect it when um, somebody says to me, I just don't feel like I have any connection with God. God doesn't seem real to me. Like I struggle to sense the presence of God. Because for one, I'm like, me too. Like at least I know I'm not alone. But I think if Jesus himself were standing here doing a, like a modern version of his sermon, he, he'd say, and, and he heard us say, like, I struggle to feel like God is real to me or to find a connection of or an experience of God. I think he'd say, blessed are you already. God is already with you in the struggle. In your lack, in your longing to feel what you don't always feel, in your honesty about it, about your own brokenness, your own lack. God comes to you as that feeling. God comes to you as that longing. Like if you struggle with doubt, the doubt is not keeping you from God. It's the shape God's presence is taking at that point in your life. God is there in it, with it. Blessed are you. And God isn't like against someone being rich or even overtly religious. It's just that God has a hard time getting close to people like that because they usually lack a poverty of spirit. The rich can totally be poor in spirit. I know many wealthy people who are poor in spirit. They can be contrite about their own brokenness, right? It's just rare. They're usually too sure of themselves. The overtly religious are usually just too sure of their... (laughs) like knowledge of God. But if you struggle to believe, you know, if God doesn't seem real to you sometimes, even though you want God to be real, God always shows up for that, man. Always shows up for that. God shows up in the squeezes. What do I mean by squeezes? The pain and the struggle of life are the squeezes. Both the joy and the sorrow of it all. The squeezes are like the universal sense of longing for something we don't even know what, but more than this. And so we try different things to fill the longing, you know, it's like relationships. So we try to get friends, fall in love, have children, and so on. Or we try work, you know, some kind of vocation, good work to do. Or we try accumulation of money and stuff. Or we try, you know, success, winning fame, fortune, or at least keeping score and kind of besting those around us. But like none of that stuff seems to assuage our sense of longing when we feel squeezed. That nagging sense that there has to be more than this. And I think what Jesus would say in a you know, contemporary sermon, if we were listing these as our struggle, I think he'd say, lucky are those who find a spouse and friends and have a family, but still feel kind of alone and lonely, even though we have those things. They will feel the squeezes 
and long for God, and God will be with them. Lucky are those who have a great job, but it kind of sucks and they hate it, right? (laughs) For they will feel the squeezes, and God will come to them in this longing for something better. Lucky are those who have a ton of stuff, but it just takes up space and isn't any fun anymore. They will feel the squeezes and turn to God, and God will be with them and lead them to a better life. Lucky are those who are a big success, but it doesn't make things better. It just kind of makes things worse. They will feel the squeezes and turn to God, who will teach them to give their lives away. Lucky are those dealing with all the worst parts of life, you know, the pain of it all. When when people leave us, when marriages fail, people get sick or hurt, when we're sad or lonely or depressed or make it just a big mistake. For they will know how much they need God in that moment, and they will not be too proud to reach out. In other words, blessed are the ragamuffins, for they will feel the squeezes and they have already begun to live with an awareness of God's presence. The Sermon on the Mount teaches us that God doesn't run from brokenness. Thank God. God runs toward it, and when we feel the squeezes of life and look to God, God comes to us, and strangely, God doesn't fix it. God doesn't fix everything that's wrong with us. He just transforms it into the point of contact. God doesn't fix us or um, the systems. Not always. God just comes and makes it the place of God's presence. And somehow God's presence is, is deeply enough. And then God asks those who have begun to live their lives with, with this awareness of God's presence to get to work on the world on themselves, on each other, to heal the sick, to befriend the lonely, to find solidarity with the outcast, to correct injustices, and just to build a better world all to the glory of God, who has come to us in friendship, and who in this Sermon on the Mount is, is teaching us how to live. Let's pray. Oh God, we just um, confess our deep need for you and our longing to, um, to sense your presence and the squeezes of life and the, and the ups and downs and the joys and the sorrow and especially in the, in the real pain of it, God. And pray that we can see that you're present in the struggle when it feels like there's nothing that that's you here when it feels like there's only doubt that that's the form you're taking. And we do pray for healing and we do pray for justice. But mostly, God, we just pray for grace and mercy that you would see us in our struggle and you would come to us. And that we would know this, this sermon is true, that blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, the strugglers, the peacemakers. Could we see how you are present to us?
Amen. Will you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion. The way that we do this, if you're new, is we just are, we're released row by row, and you come forward, and you take a piece of bread and dip it into the cup and receive it. And as you do this, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can respond by just saying, I will remember, or however you're comfortable responding. The reason we do this is that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and a cup, and he made all of his followers share the, the same cup, the same loaf of bread. It's all took a little bit of it. And he said, this is like my body broken for you. This is my, my blood um, that establishes a new covenant, like a new way of relating to God. So he's like, what I want you to do from now on, because I'm going away, is, is take my body, take my life into your life when you gather. Be made of what I'm made of, and then be my hands and feet in the world. And so the church has always done this, and that's why we, we practice communion each week. And it's also why we don't put any limits on it. Anybody who wants to come join us in this feast can join us. Um, so if you would, let's, let's all pray a blessing together on the table. Oh God, we, we pray your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace and a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?